welcome to the MindChimp Podcast. Hey David, welcome to the MindChimp Podcast. How are we doing? Awesome. Absolutely brilliant. Good. It's good to have you here. It's good to have you here. It's been um it's been a long time coming, I think. Yeah, I'm I'm really unreliable. So we've been <laughs> trying to get this in for, for months and months and months, I think. Uh, for which I hardly apologise, but I'm delighted to be speaking to you now. Good things come to those who wait, and I think my uh, my listeners will appreciate this one, definitely. So I guess, David, before we even get into it, I tend to ask my guests to come up with a a logline of, of what summarises them. Do you have one? Yeah, I, I, I'm going to cheat. I'm, I'm going to use one that um, a friend of mine called John Amici uh, talked to me about the first time um, we met. So I asked him what he did and he said, I solve intractable problems. And I really like that because actually throughout my career, I guess the thing that most attracts me is problems that other people would find difficult to solve. Or those kind of knotty things where people go, it always has to be like that. And you go, well, actually, maybe it doesn't. So I'm going to steal from John and say that. And actually, I think in terms of challenges in my career i'm always looking for something that i think could get fixed or could be improved so i'm gonna go with that okay okay perfect so just taking you back way way back when when you was um when you was in school david what and the teacher said david what do you want to be when you grow up what is it you you wanted to be when you was a, a little child so uh when i was really small uh i wanted to be a doctor uh we've got um a lot of doctors in our family um, and I was pretty committed to that, probably from, you know, that's probably, you know, the earliest thing I can remember about professions is that I would follow in family footsteps and I would grow up and I would be a, a doctor. And then uh, when I was about 14, maybe, my mum was diagnosed with MS. Um, and actually, I realised very rapidly that the idea of not being able to cure something um not being able to solve that problem um, meant that I probably wouldn't be a great fit for the medical profession. So, um, but yeah, doctor. And I, I still think it's one of the finest professions out there. Nice. Okay. Okay. So I guess these, my, the show is kind of hit and miss. It'll go from a real in-depth question to something really bizarre. So yeah, just go with that. Um, but I guess I, I want to fire a few words at you. And what I want you to do is to kind of, just say the first thing what pops in your head to these words. Okay. So the first one is culture. Club. L and D. Oh, that's a tricky one. Uh, insight. CIPD. Work. Leadership. Overdone. Okay, that's it. That's it. And I'm sure we'll get into them in just a sec, but. I guess, guess for my listeners, David, for them who, you know, we're probably 1% of the population who don't know who you are within our field, maybe you could give us a bit of a whistle-stop tour of kind of where you've come from, right the way up to where you are right now. Uh, yeah, so I, I started wanting to be a doctor and that didn't work out. I, um, uh, well, my first proper job, well, actually, my first proper job, I would have been a kid, and I think it was, um, it was selling duvets, I think, for like £2.07 an hour um, in, a, in a duvet shop. Um but my first proper grown-up job, I worked in uh, M&S doing uh, recruitment and induction training. I moved from there to work for um, a financial services organisation. Uh, and I started off there doing employee engagement and retention, so that kind of space, and then moved uh, through a whole host of HRE and L&D type stuff. So 
some core skills training, looking after some programs in that space. So lots of delivery, quite a bit of design, leadership development programs, that sort of thing. But then eventually ended up doing organizational development, um, where uh, I was very lucky that the HR director who I worked for at the time kind of plucked me out and said, I think this would be a really good fit for your skill set. And she was right. OD has always been a, an absolute passion of mine um, and still is to this day. And then uh, from there, I moved and I had uh, what I would describe as an incredibly unsuccessful stint at Metro Bank uh, as head of people development there. I did um, a few years uh, working as an independent consultant. Again, leadership development programs, talents, performance management, that kind of space. And then eventually ended up at the CIPD. Where I'm now, because I forgot to say what I actually do now, I'm now a membership director at the CIPD. Okay. Okay. So, so yeah, I mean, I think, I think we, you know, people in our field probably all know what CIPD is. Um, and if you don't, I think you're probably going to tell us in just a second. So, so maybe could you give us a, a bit of a, an insight into what the, 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 a day looks like in your life? Uh, it's, it's really varied. So I'll, the CIPD is the professional body for HR and people development. We've got over 150,000 members. Um, around the world, but predominantly actually in the UK. Um, we're the only body that can provide chartered membership in our field, um, and the organization's over 100 years old. So it's got an incredible heritage going back to um, actually the Welfare Workers Association. So it's always been concerned about quality of work and support in working environments. Um, so really interesting history, and if anyone digs into it, it's absolutely fascinating. Um, so we exist to champion better working, working lives. Um, and we do that in two ways. One is supporting the professions and making sure that actually we've got uh, content and qualifications that support that. But also really importantly, I think for a modern organization, flourishing communities where people can learn from each other, share experiences and get advice. Um, and then we also have a broader um, kind of policy and social influence. So that might be anything from lobbying on exec pay and fairness, uh, right through to running volunteer schemes in schools. So um, really lucky to work for an organisation that's at the heart of so many good things. My average day, um, I've got a team of about 80, 85. Uh, I've got some people looking at what we need to improve in terms of the membership experience. I've got a customer service team looking after all of the calls coming in or the emails coming in to about 100,000 contacts a year. Um, and then on top of that, I mustn't forget anyone, this would be awful. Uh, I've got someone looking after senior stakeholder relationships. I look after our branch structure. So I've got a team looking after all of our volunteers and they put on about a thousand learning events each year, which is incredible. Um, and then I've also got um, teams looking at uh, supporting nations and regions. So some teams in Scotland, in the north of England, Northern Ireland, and in Wales. Wow. Average average day could be anything. So um, either dealing with those teams internally, or I did quite a lot of external speaking and kind of promoting the organisation uh, externally. So I might be speaking to a major consultancy, or I might be talking to another professional body, or I might just be popping up on stage uh, in front of you know members of the profession having a chat. I guess, I mean, I know of the CIPD um, and that I have a bit of a love-hate with it and, and I think CIPD are doing some really good stuff now. I think 
my personal take on CIPD is they was a little bit behind in the L&D space a while back, but I think that was kind of acknowledged and you made some big strides now on kind of not plugging that gap, but getting, you know, getting getting that up to speed now. You know, you've got Andy on board and stuff. So, but it's interesting to see how many, a thousand learning events. Yeah, so the, there's over a thousand events put on by the branches each year. So they're kind of local events. Um, and actually some of them are small. So some of those might be 15 independent consultants talking about actually their work and how that how that kind of fits in. Some of them, that'll be a 200, 300 person conference. Um, so I, I genuinely think I'm really proud to be associated with that. Um, they're trying loads of new stuff as well, which is really interesting. So playing about with different formats, you know, be it World Cafe, Open Space, Ignite. So, you know, people really get a chance to play in that space. It's, um, yeah, it's incredible. But yeah, to your point around L&D, it's a really interesting one. So um, I knew Andy before I started at the CIPD. And in fact, he's a great guy. And he's one of the reasons I joined because I get to go and work with a buddy. Um, and he has put in so much work and energy um, into genuinely modernizing and giving profile to our offering there. Yeah. And I, I can't give the guy enough credit. And I, I think there's still a, because you're right, we weren't great at times. I think there's still an overhang from that. But I genuinely think, well, I'm confident now that if I kind of put anyone into that space, that they're going to be pleasantly surprised actually with the work that's been done. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I was I was lucky to do. I think it must have been one of the you know one of the thousand meetups we did, and I was I think probably last year. And um, Rachel Burnham, I think maybe it was. A, yeah, yeah. And um, I was lucky enough to do it. You know, host a table and talk about how to create kind of personal learning networks and whatnot. And actually, it was really good. It was that kind of, it was more like a, yeah, a revolving space and people come and sat down with you. You know, it was, it was actually, I, I was pleasantly surprised, I'll be honest. It was actually just a really nice atmosphere as well. Um, but yeah, no, it, it was nice. And I think, I think um, it, it goes back to that thing of being the, the chartered, you know, the chartered member of what we're doing and kind of, I think it has value, definitely. I think over time, I've been kind of anti-CIPD and then I've been, actually, no, you know, who 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 else is doing this kind of stuff for, for what we do? So, yeah, I kind of sit in the middle of it now. And it's and I think Andy's doing some great work, like you mentioned. Um, I, I, was at, I was at the first ever conference, actually. Was it, is it the Festival of Work, I think it was, a couple of weeks ago? Yeah. Yeah. So that was the first time I've ever been to there and that was that was great. That was great. Um so yeah, I was I I've, I've been pleasantly surprised recently, so yeah. But again, you like mentioned Andy's hard work is, is obviously paying off for sure. Yeah, it's it's you know, in the L and D space that's absolutely true. I think, you know, there's been a lot of progress in a lot of different areas. But I mean it, we spoke before you know, just before we kind of started this interview and you said you were gonna mention Cardgate. <laughs> the exploding membership card scandal um and that's been a really interesting journey just in terms of change management so for, for anyone who doesn't know uh, we decided based on member feedback to uh, change our cards from plastic to um, a, a kind of floppier version is the easiest way of putting it that um, didn't do as much damage to the environment um the change controls around that weren't good enough and we ended up sending out lots of cards that broke apart in people's hands. Um, and what's been really interesting is how many people contacted us and said, 
all I get for my money is a floppy card. And you go, well, and there's been a really good opportunity actually for us to engage with our members and say, actually, that's not what you get for your money. You know, the card is basically nothing out of your membership fee. But here's some content that you may not know about. Here are our communities, get involved with them. You know, this is the level of professional recognition you get from your designation. Um, you know, and actually we've had people just going, well, this is brilliant. I didn't have access to that link. I didn't know that, you know, I got a discount here. I didn't know that I had access to this content. And that is where we need to get to as an organization where people understand that value, not the card. So, you know, the card was 10 out of 10, I think from 10 and two out of 10 for execution. Um, but we can learn from that and move on. But the most important thing actually is that we keep connecting with people and going, this is how you get value. And actually, I genuinely think, you know, that our, our content, quite often people don't access or they find hard to access and we need to work on that. But the community is just a remarkable thing. Um, it's full of smart people giving up their time to help others. And that makes me almost prouder than anything else to work for the CIPD. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I agree. I think I think I messaged you when I seen it was all going off on on LinkedIn, and yeah. I think I kind of said to you, "Wow, really? Is this is this a thing?" Because I I like the idea behind that. The you know the intent is there, and and actually the people who are complaining are probably also the people who talks about minimum viable products and iterate, iterate, iterate. So then they kind of need to step back and go, actually, this is this you know it's just an iteration of what will come next. Um, You've got to go. You've got to start somewhere in order to get to the final product, right? And I think, yeah, the ten out of ten and three yeah. out of ten, whatever, it's really not a big I, deal. I, th- I think we, you know, well, we held our hands up. We apologised. You know, I recorded a video. I think within twenty four hours, apologising to people, and that's actually before we understood the extent of the problem. We did that at the point we thought we'd let some people down. Um, it was a really interesting one. I, I was waking up each morning. I had three hundred notifications on my phone. So, you know, Twitter, LinkedIn, it, it was it was carnage. But I'll always defend people's right to complain because it's our job to provide a really good service. It's our good job to make people happy with us and feel they're getting value. And if they don't feel that, then we've got to, you know, you've got to front it up um, and say sorry, talk more openly about what we're working on. But, yeah, uh, the, if anyone's thinking about taking out chartered membership of a professional body just because they want a nice card. Um, <laughs> it, it's a niche group and I'm probably not going to be able to provide exactly what they want. <laughs> Maybe you should do what Revolt do and charge everyone a tenner for a metal card. You know, giving back VIP. Yeah, or, or personalise the cards, everyone to get their, uh, their, their kind of uh, faces on. But I think, you know, we're working at the moment, we've got a team working on a digital card. Um, which I think um, lots of people have requested through this, actually. They've said, look, we're not actually bothered about the card. We'd rather have no card than one that breaks up in our hands, obviously. But, you know, can we have a digital option? So we're working on that. And ideally, we would have had that in place before this year, but we're working on that now. Cool, cool. It was um, it was, it was, was interesting to watch, I guess. I enjoyed I enjoyed watching it, I'm not going to lie. It was, it was interesting to watch it all go down. <laughs> I'm glad you did. It was hellish to be in the middle of it. Um, so, and that's not just from a personal point of view. Uh, you know, I, I think sometimes there's a, there's a really unfair perception of um, our staff because I hear it sometimes when I kind of talk to people. It's kind of like ivory tower or disconnected or stuff like that. I can genuinely tell tell you we've got 300 plus people busting a gut to try and make things better. 
And so to see some of the criticism that came in um, was really hurtful, actually, because I think at times, because people are upset and understand that, they forget that there's people behind it um, and that those people, one, apologise really quickly and two, we're trying to put stuff right for them. So um, it's an interesting one to lead through when you're kind of, you know, and it was an onslaught at times. We, we could not keep up with the comments on LinkedIn. You know, we couldn't keep up with the comments on Twitter um, because everyone was posting in different places. So, you know, we couldn't, not even close down that conversation because that'd be wrong. But, you know, there were some threads where someone would say, I'm disgusted with my membership card. You know, why hasn't the CIPD responded to this? I would be the first person to respond. And yet, because of the way LinkedIn works, there'd then be another 200 comments going, yeah, the CIPD mm. are just ignoring this. <laughs> I, I wrote back straight away. Like, we're not ignoring it. It's just a, it's a difficult medium to conquer. So I felt really sorry for the teams. Um we need to own getting better. But yeah, as a study of humanity, it was quite interesting. Definitely. definitely. So I guess a lot of these questions are going to be fundamentally around probably three things, HR, L&D and CIPD. So I guess the first question, and I reached out to my network and I got a couple of good questions in. So I guess the first question, and it's a two-parter. So the first part is me, what do you think is L&D's problem? And the second part to that question is from Suck, and it is, what can L&D learn from the movie Jaws? <laughs> that, that's a nice, easy setup, isn't it? Um, <laughs> do you know what? I, I could go on for two, three hours on the Jaws one. Um, what's L&D's problem? So I, I have a... In some ways, that's a, it's a really unhealthy question, Um and I think that's, if I was going to say what's LND's problem, it's probably perpetually asking questions like that, yeah. um, which don't necessarily move things on. I think I was chatting to some internal comms professionals recently um, about their reluctance to be seen under the banner of HR. And I think sometimes you get that with LND as well. Um, I am a firm believer, and actually, I, you know, and actually resourcing professionals are another who sometimes say that we're, we're distinct. I'm a firm believer that. Anyone with an interest in making things better for people in organizations and helping them flourish should be joining up, integrating as much as possible to get proper systemic enduring solutions to problems and creating great environments for people to thrive in. And I think sometimes we're so obsessed with the identity of our profession that we somewhat lose the purpose. And I think that would be, I guess, my reflection on some of the conversations that I see going on around LND. I think the other one is sometimes that sense of desire for identity results in the divorcing from the actual business needs. So the focus on performance or the focus on individual development. So we get caught up in our own language. We get caught up in our own side debates. And we take our eyes off the big prize. And the question isn't, well, let me frame it a different way, because I'm now in a, a general management position. I'm not working in the profession per se. I want uh, departments and areas to show me their value. I don't want them to tell me what that I should value them, which is a really different thing. So LND quite often has, what I hear is, why don't the business get it? And actually, if the business don't get it, it's because you're not communicating it effectively enough or you're not doing the right stuff. Um, 
And that I think is an absolute area of improvement. And, and that's, you know, across many professions. Um, but I almost hear that kind of slightly zealous uh, kind of approach from some L&D professionals, which is a kind of, if only the business understood how good we are, and it's like, okay, well, then your stakeholder management isn't where it needs to be or your product isn't. It's one of those two things. Okay. Okay. And, well, and then it was Jaws, wasn't it? That was the yeah. second one. Do you want me to go for Jaws? Go for it. Um, what, what can L&D learn from Jaws? I'm going to go for um, adequate preparation and understanding of needs. So... Um, when Zanuck and Brown, uh, who were the two producers, finished making Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, they had uh, an opportunity to purchase just about any uh, kind of film script that they wanted or any treatment that they wanted. Um, and the, the choice was um, Jaws, uh, which was kind of a book at that point. But when they bought it, the, um, the assumption was that you could just train great white sharks to swim towards people and then veer away. And that would kind of take <laughs> care of the filming aspect. Um, so, there, you know, this movie was optioned uh, for, I think it was over a million dollars in the end in kind of a bidding war. Um, and then they went to actually do it in a real life environment. And they spoke to some experts in this space and they went, yeah, you don't train great white sharks. That's not the way that works. Um, and actually, they ended up, you know, we ended up with one of the greatest movies of all time. If you adjust for inflation, it's it's still, I think, in the top 10 most successful movies of all time. Um, but the lesson, I guess, that sits behind that is that sometimes a superficial understanding and faith isn't the same as an in-depth understanding and preparation. Um, and I, I still think I see too many initiatives happening in organizations without really joined up thinking and the right people being involved in the conversation. Is that a good enough fudge? Yeah, no, that was good. That was good, good work. I think it becomes down to this kind of, there's a few things which I think, just listening to that, it's probably going to go into my next question. There's this kind of, I was having a, I was having a debate with someone, not a debate, it was a conversation. I don't even know why I use debate, but it was a conversation I was talking about system thinking and, and looking at how, how you know, the kind of, you change this thing and it has this this approach on many other things, you know. And I think, personally, I think sometimes we see in as they go for that straight line and think that everything is a straight line and, and they don't see the, the the kind of system thinking around that and actually by doing that it's going to have this knocking effect of Dave in over there and Michelle over in XYZ part of the business. It's just, yeah, I, I, think, I think I get where you're coming from on that. I think it's a case of... Just going back to the the thing that you mentioned about the stakeholder management and either, you know, either your product isn't there or your stakeholder management isn't. But it's interesting to kind of hear where, well, I guess where where you see it being a thing of, you know, a, a, how, do, how do I put this? It's not necessarily this big thing, but I think it's more of a systemic approach and... Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't want yeah, to go through it. I, I think that's, you know, if you're asking, you know, when you ask me about the problem with L&D, I, I describe part of that being that desire to be seen separate and apart. And part of that is because as I've got older, more experienced maybe, or I failed more, all of those are possibilities, or maybe it's all three. Um, 
what's become clear to me is that if you don't have a systemic approach to solving problems, they end up as isolated initiatives that, that fall flat. So, for instance, if you if you genuinely want to increase the caliber of your leadership, yeah, sure, you can send people on a series of retreats over a year and you can get great facilitators and you can do that. And it, that that's all great stuff. But if you instead of going, what's the learning solution here? Step back and when actually what would we need to do to guarantee at the end of this that we have the greatest possible chance of having better leaders? You'd step back and you'd look at the way that you manage performance. You'd look at the incentives that you have within the organization. You look at your recruiting processes. You look at all of those things together because any one of those elements in isolation is likely to fail. Um, and I think that's where actually the best chance of success for developing people in organizations, developing organizations that help their people be great and are great comes from, is that joining up? Um, and that's that point around systemic thinking. Part of it is just simply going back and going, not what could we do here, but what are all of the things we'd need to do here to make sure we've got the greatest likelihood of success, or even more strongly, to make sure that we can ensure that we don't fail. So it's really interesting you mentioned this because I've been doing a weekly article on, on something like this. It's basically it's talking about um, experience design and this human-centered approach and how businesses look at it from this top down and actually we should be designing these micro these nano experiences which will have this bubble up effect and and it's this thing of sometimes I feel like we design but we don't necessarily design for our people we design for what we think our, we design for our assumptions and and I think it you know when you look at something like the employee life cycle fundamentally when you stretch it all out it's just it's it's a cycle of lots and lots of moments and experiences. That's all it is. It's when you stretch it out. You know, you look at how do you recruit? Well, what does that experience look like? How how are we doing that? And exit, how how does that experience tally up with each other? So it's it's interesting to kind of hear hear where you're going with that. Yeah, and any any of those experiences in isolation will be trumped if the rest of the system hasn't changed. So if, if I give you a wonderful welcome on your first day to the business, so I hate saying onboarding because that just feels like we're applying jargon. If I make you feel really welcome, if the sum total of those activities and interactions makes you feel really welcome on day one, but on day two, your security card doesn't work, you find out you're not actually going to get paid for like two months because there's a mistake in the system and you can't get into your IT, you've undone day one very rapidly. And it is that, to your point around, it's lots of these smaller experiences that bubble up. It's that, but it's also that overarching feeling within any organization around some of the really important stuff. So will I be treated fairly here? Is the summation not only of your experience, but your experience of other people and their treatment? Will, um, you know, if I have a problem, can I voice that? Or will that voice be squashed or not listened to? They're all things that I think are fundamental building blocks for organizations that we don't often think about necessarily in the right way. So your engagement survey, still done in many organizations, might you know get to lots of things that don't actually cover what people are most worried about, concerned about. You know, how many surveys actually genuinely ask about sexual harassment? Yeah. If if your biggest problem 
isn't actually whether the office is warm or cold. It's whether you're likely to get groped at the Christmas party. We're focusing on the wrong stuff and we need to give people that space to open up their voices, to explain their experiences and how they impact them. And then, yeah, you're right. We absolutely need to get better at designing systems in a joined up way that support good experiences happening all the time and people being directed to. I think just just kind of listen to when you talk about the, the day one thing as well. And, you know, I, I, had, I was on a podcast recently and I was saying it's these, lit, these little big things what matter. You know, we make the assumption that this has got to be this way and it's got to be this giant thing. I'm like, no, the chances are people are probably just worried about what to wear on day one. They're, they're worried about where to park the car. But if you take well, that... I... Sorry, go on, David. Yeah, where, will I fit in? Yeah. You know, like, where do I get a coffee from? Does everyone go out at lunch together? Like, how does any of that stuff work? That's the some of the stuff that matters that we don't think about. But, but it, and then it's kind of overlaying that over the whole of the experience of work, right? And, you know, I think... I remember I was at, um, I won't name a company, but I was at a company recently and it wasn't recent at all, but I was at a company and um, basically no one told me how long we got for dinner. And it was one of them things where, isn't it a massive thing, right? Like the last place where I worked was an hour. So, but it turned out it was 45 minutes. But no one ever explained that to me. And to the day when I left, no one ever had to explain that to me. I had to actually go out and seek that for myself. And... When we talk about it here, I think, oh, it's not really a big thing. But actually, I remember being in that moment thinking, right, well, we're not all having dinner together, so I can't kind of judge when I need to go back and when I don't need to go back. And it starts becoming this bigger, bigger thing. And I know it's a really tiny example, but applying that to kind of sexual harassment and stuff, and yeah, it's an interesting one. So do you know, kind of when we talk about these surveys, do you know any companies who are, who are putting that within their survey? Like real big things like to address like that. So um, yeah, Nick caught uh, at the People Experience Hub, PX Hub. Um, uh, so as an organisation, we'd never endorse, but you asked me a, a kind of direct question. So Nick Court's done a lot of work in this area. He's a really um, useful people to hook into his knowledge. He's Scruffy Nick uh, on Twitter. So at Scruffy Nick, if you if you want to look him up. But we've had some really good conversations actually about how you genuinely look at experience um, and how you might be able to either measure that or get better insight into it. And I think they're they're possibly slightly different things. And he's a really good thinker in this space. Um, But he's, he's, again, really passionate about the fact that we need to design mechanics in organisations. And I mean mechanics in its broadest sense, so that can include, you know, the systems between people that allow people to lift their voices up on the stuff they care about, not the trammel lines that the organisation forced them into. Okay, cool. I think I met I met Nick for the first time actually recently. He's um he's a tall guy, right? He's he's he, he's, he's he makes me feel tiny. Um, uh, he's uh incredibly kind, incredibly generous with his time, and a really good thinker. But he is um yeah significantly taller than than me. Yeah. And me, and me. Yeah, he, I had a, I had a really good chat with him actually. He's a real, he's a real pleasant guy. Um, so I guess kind of going, and we'll we'll actually go with the CIPD question here. So, obviously taking out Cardgate, what's what's the biggest challenge CIPD are facing right now? 
I think, um, so I'm a great believer in listening to our members. So we did a survey uh, last year of all of our membership and thousands of responses. And what we got loud and clear was really interesting that we aren't good enough at helping people access what we already have. That, that may sound really odd, but we had lots of people going, you know, you don't have any research in this area or what I'd really find useful is this. And I'll be going, but, but it's on the website. Um, and we haven't done a good enough job of communicating to people all the things we have that will make their lives easier or get them better at their jobs. And we've got to bridge that gap. Um, so that's a challenge for us. The other challenge is if you haven't been a member for five years or you haven't been involved for a number of years, you wouldn't necessarily be aware of the improvements that we've made or any of the progress that we've made. Um, I kind of compare it to if you, if you have five really bad meals in a restaurant, you need some trigger to make you go back. Otherwise, you'll just assume that that restaurant does bad food. Um, and we've got to find a way to, you know, be good enough actually with our current members that they start raving about us to other people and, and get them interested in coming back and seeing what we're doing now. Okay. Okay. That's good to know. That's good to know. So I guess this next question comes from um, Nick Shackleton-Jones. And his his question was, what gigs, i.e. in brackets gig economy, do you think we'll still be able to get in 10 years' time? Does he mean for L&D as a whole? I think he just means as a whole. He just puts it, yeah, in gig economy. So, gig gig economy is quite an interesting thing because there are different definitions of it. But if if we looked at, I suppose, what might be typified as unsecured work or insecure work, um, that would be, I suppose, at the lower end of a portfolio, um, which isn't guaranteed employment. So if you think about things like Uber um, and that kind of space, then I don't think there'll be massive movement in that space over the next 10 years. Um, So I spend a lot of my time looking at and speaking to experts around the future work. And I think there are some really big changes coming. I just don't think some of them are going to be as rapid as, as we might think. Um, particularly, I guess, around um, the impact of automation. So uh, I think there'll be stacks of um, gig work. I think there'll be more than there is now. I think the only thing that might change that, particularly in the UK, is um, legislative intervention. So we've seen more of a focus uh, on intervention in that area, um, both uh, in terms of court rulings, so things like um, Uh, Uber's, uh, the rulings around Uber, um, and whether it genuinely was an employer, were people workers, were people uh, contractors. Um, But we've also seen in the Taylor review more of a focus on atypical work and actually the conditions that are needed to make sure that that's good work. So um, that's a a long-winded and probably quite technical answer to uh, Nick's question. Um, I think it won't look hugely different. There'll probably be a bit more, but what I would hope is that as more people shift into that work, that we make sure that employment and worker rights move in the same space, because the worst case scenario would be more people worrying about their mortgage or rental agreements, or more people simply not able to get them because they can't prove permanence of employment. So that would be a a big societal shift. We've done research in the past that shows, um, I suppose, mixed experiences for gig workers. Um, But 
one thing that is true is that certainly it can be a construct that's abused and where it is abused, um, the losses are significant in terms of societal cohesion, but more importantly, just the individual. So we've got to keep that balance of power right between the employer um, and the people that are working in the economy. Cool. So, so I guess I just want to pick up on something which kind of come to mind as well with regards. You mentioned just well five minutes ago about um, failures and stuff. And I think it, it's interesting. We we talk about you know when we go for roles and we have to we have to kind of talk about being our best selves. And when we when we you know when we get interviewed, it was like when was you did when did you do this and when did you do that and you know bigging ourselves up. And I think actually probably one of the best questions to ask is what would your failure CV look like? So if I was to ask you that question, David, what 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 would your failure CV look like and what what one big failure kind of comes to mind and maybe it's something where it was deemed a failure at the time and it ended up being a positive you know later on down the line but is there any what jumped to come to mind oh uh, you, you really softened that question at the end uh, I'm, I'm disappointed in you <laughs> you did the interview thing like oh what's your greatest weakness oh sometimes i'm just too good at stuff um <laughs> i i think um uh, so i started writing a failure cv a few years back uh, and I didn't finish it, which is probably like a kind of meta failure. <laughs> What's your failure CV look like? Oh, it's like three paragraphs long and then I couldn't finish it. Um, <laughs> really lousy. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I said it earlier in the interview, and I, I'm kind of really open about it. And I think I've even got it down like on LinkedIn next to it. When I, when I was at Metro Bank, you know, that was pretty much an abject failure for me. Um, I spent... Um, wasn't there as long as I thought I would be. I didn't make as good an impact as I thought I would do. I had a lot going on at home that meant my eye probably wasn't on the ball. And I think it's probably the lowest performing period of my career by, by like an absolute mile. Um, so, you know, I'd, I'd say it was that. And, you know, I, I learned during that period because I got to work in a, you know, a small organisation, you know, in a really high um, kind of uh, pace growth environment, really high standards. First time I worked for a company of kind of American ownership um, or kind of with an American backer, uh, at least in that kind of culture, learned stacks during a very short amount of time. Um, but yeah, definitely an abject failure. You know, if I'd had a whole career like that, um, I, I, I very much doubt I'll be getting paid now. Okay, so so... Oh, he's after just hold on one second. David, my, de- my dog's going berserk. Oh my days! Hopefully, can you hear? Can you hear my dog in the background? Yeah, but that's not good enough. I thought this is a professional interview. Oh, but <laughs> believe me, this is not professional. Well, I expect better standards than this. You can stop laughing as well. So I've got my daughter with me uh, here, who um, at the point your dog started barking has now started laughing at this end. So. <laughs> Maybe we'll keep this in just because it adds authenticity to it. Serious thing. Daddy's talking about how he's rubbish at jobs. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I think think he's stopped now. I think he's stopped now. So, yeah. um, Maybe maybe we should uh, let let your daughter say hi just for the the podcast. Do you want to say hello? Can you say hello to everyone? Hello. (laughs) <laughs> okay, well, your laugh sounds a little bit manic now. That sounds a bit forced. That's not really. Yeah, no. no, that's really weird. What are you doing? What are you doing? 
This, this is recorded for all time now. Like somewhere on the internet forever, it's going to be you doing a weird laugh. There you go. Yeah, you didn't on three, did you? You can smile all you like, but that's a like you, that's fate now. You're the, you're the girl with the weird laugh, like in a book. <laughs> they'll find you like in thousands of years. They'll dig that out and they'll go, "This is a curio from that year." That weird girl. Anyway, sorry, I went off on a tangent, mate. No, no, no. It's absolutely fine. It's absolutely fine. I guess. Actually, let, let's let's take you back to being um, a child, David. So, can you remember the first time you was ever in trouble, and what did you do? Ah, oh, that's a really interesting question. I thought you were going to ask me, like, can you remember the first time you ran an induction session, <laughs> like, something like that? <laughs> uh, first time I was ever in trouble. Um, oh, that's an interesting one. Uh, yeah, I, I remember um, we, we lived in, in kind of like a, a small little cottage that had a spiral staircase going up to, it was an old bakery, so it had a spiral staircase going up to what would have been the old um, flower loft. And um, I used to climb up the spiral staircase because uh, it was the most exciting thing to do when I, I guess you were three, four, maybe I was even a little bit younger. Uh, and I remember... Um, my mother spanking me uh, and not quite catching me. Um, and this is in the days where that was far more socially acceptable. I'm not in any way scarred by this, uh, but not quite catching me. And then I remember her hitting me again. And I remember going running, crying to my grandmother, like basically going, look, I expected one smack, but the second one, that was unnecessary. <laughs> um, and I, I think I obviously had a very, you know, a very strong view from a very early age on crime and punishment. And proportionality so I, I kind of like climbing the stairs that gets you one smack too that's just ridiculous so yeah that's the first time i think i was in trouble i can remember my mom being angry with me <laughs> well I, mean, I think that was partly because she was embarrassed having to explain to her mother why she didn't spank me properly the first time <laughs> fair enough fair enough so so if we was okay let's do this if you if i if i was to ask you to give a book to five people and maybe this is a book that's changed your life or open you open your eyes to something and you want five people to read this book what what book would you give oh that's an incredibly tough question um that's really tough um So my, my favorite, I'm going to go with my favorite book because that life changing thing may be a bit much. So my favorite book is uh, The County of Monte Cristo. Uh, I think it's an incredible um, work. It's got a weird bit in the middle uh, where they go to a carnival and that's because um, he was getting paid by the word. So he hacked out something that he'd written for a travel article and stuck it in the middle of his book. Um, and I love that story. So I think I'll go for The County of Monte Cristo. It's got, um, there's history in it. There's a genuinely strong relationships. There's an incredible kind of setup and elaborate tale, like a kind of heist, but played out across um, almost across generations. Uh, so I'm I'm going to go for the Count of Monte Cristo. Um, workbooks, because uh, I do get. I've got a kind of like a little library, like in my office, where anyone can kind of just come and take a book that they fancy. Um, and I'd say probably the the original Freakonomics um, got me really interested in the use of data and analytics in better understanding people and how they act. 
And to your point earlier about assuming that people do certain things or want certain things, um, actually taking a slightly more scientific or analytical approach to going, yeah, but what do they really want? What are they really thinking? You know, how do incentives really work? Um, and that, that, you know, got me into what, what's been a, a long and passionate affair with behavioral economics. So I'll go with the original Freakonomics. Okay, perfect. I do not think I've read that, to be honest. So I'll put that one on, on the list. This is one of the biggest things. Other than having great conversations, my reading list after every season just goes up <laughs> and up and up. So yeah, no, I'll put that on there for sure. So if I was to ask you, you've got a billboard and you there's a, there's a stadium at the side of this billboard and in a couple of minutes, a million people are going to walk out and look at this stadium at this billboard, sorry, and you can put anything you want on there to shape a million people's minds, what would you write on that billboard? Wow, what would you do? I didn't hear that question. Okay, let, let's go for it. Let's do it right. Let's do, this is a team, right? You've got a billboard yeah. outside of a stadium and a million people are going to see it yeah. and you can put any words on it. What would you go for? That's really hard. It is really hard, which is why I'm passing it over to you. That's how you work. <laughs> Um, bam, bam, pebbles. Well, no, they're cats, right? Family? So, no, is right. Stop. <laughs> right, <laughs> you're supposed to influence them to make the world a better place. So cool. not just list things. Right. So, what advice would you want to give people? You're pretty good at advice. I look to you when I've got a problem at work, don't I? So, <laughs> so what, what advice would you give them? Um. Look on the positive side. Okay, we'll, we'll take that. Look on the positive side. And you're always telling people to be kind, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, look on the positive side and be kind. We're, we're going for up here. So we'd like to lock in that answer, please. Okay, that's locked in. That is a Ooh. that is a great, great answer. Well done, team. Well done. High five. <laughs> so if we was kind of going, going back a bit more into kind of L&D now, HR and whatnot, if we... Let's forget everything we know now about L&D. And I'll let you pick L&D or HR, whichever way you want to go with this, David. Um, but if you could reimagine that team and you could put other people in there from other industries and, and different kind of walks of life, how would you reimagine the HR or L&D team? Or would you? That's really interesting. I think um, I'll deal with it as a whole. And I, I would say that I would love to see, I'll come back to actually probably my previous answer, I'd love to see more behavioural economists and psychologists working in that space, but actually given the opportunity to work across a breadth. So not just we're bringing someone in to do our development centre or our assessments, but actually how would a psychologist or a behavioural economist support organisational change and transformation at a kind of, massive level so I'll, I'll get some of them in they'll be useful and then i think sometimes just just problem solvers no nonsense problem solvers so again avoid the jargon maybe i want some just you know some experienced engineers in there to just go look this is what we need to do this is the problem surely we do that you know here's our critical path let's knock it out and then i think um there's space for more compassion in organizations so i always think you know whether it's skill set that you get with social workers um or whether actually it's a skill set that you get in some of the more caring professions 
I think genuinely approaching work with a focus on dignity and care would be a, a really beneficial thing for everyone involved in organisations. And then I'd also, and this is going to go completely contrary because I think we need a, a bit more art and a bit more science. I'll, I'll get some proper accountants uh, and finance folk, um, management accountants, but not necessarily running the function because I, I think sometimes that can you know commercialise people, but helping HR understands and and Alan D more broadly understand where it can add value. So I'm always sceptical about when we do return on investment. Um, and I judge a lot of awards, but I've also seen it throughout my career. My, my view on the way L&D does investment or return on investment is that normally if you added up all of the programs that, you know, and the success claimed in a year, every company would be the size of Microsoft or Facebook. <laughs> it's just like every every course has got like a 6,000% return. Um, and we know the world doesn't work that way. And I've seen businesses really offended by that, actually. So I remember working in one. And the kind of L&D manager was saying, you know, yeah, this is all the sales uplift we've delivered this year. And like the head of sales was like, what do you think we've been doing? <laughs> like, you know, you, this isn't just because people went on a training course. Yeah, there's, there's, there's some uplift there. But, you know, we've been leading them, we've been motivating them, we've been hiring them every single day. So, um, so yeah, there, there's a bit of humility and a bit of boldness, I think, tucked up in all of them. So I've given you a hodgepodge of people for which I apologise. No, that's a good blend. That's a that's a good blend, and there's people now I wouldn't even thought of. When I ask, I, can't, I try to ask myself these questions, and yeah, I didn't, I didn't think about a couple of them there. It was really interesting, especially kind of this, like say the engineer kind of mindset on that, because I think I like to use this term of design as thinking, not design thinking. That's the two separate, very very separate things. Um, and I put a bit of a a post out there recently saying. Actually, the L&D team, if marketing and comms can talk to each other across the table and we can get some good service designers in there and some good product designers, add in a couple of good mentors and coaches, I mean, you've kind of got a lot of what L&D try to offer. I think there's an element of empathy what would probably go missing, but I guess going back to what you say now, David, you know, someone from kind of a care background or whatnot, that would kind of, yeah... I don't know. I bet this could be a whole discussion for itself, but yeah, I'm just kind of firing yeah, off now thinking. I, th I think they're not necessarily roles, but they're skill sets. Um, and I, I think that's that's kind of key. You know, I often think, you know, people who've worked in, I don't know, a small retailer, you know, where every penny counts and you don't have enough time for, you know, the fluff. You've got to make stuff work, but you're also dependent on the relationships in that space. I often think, you know, if you just lifted some of those up and transplanted them into organisations and didn't stifle them, what would happen? Um, so, yeah, yeah, I think there's opportunities to do different things. I think there's, there's something to be had about kind of, and I, I'm not, you know, I don't think this is even that feasible, but actually just asking people what they want to work on rather than making the assumption of this is your role, this is what you've got to work on. I think there's, there's a thing about kind of, creating project teams rather than teams and going to what what their North Star is or what they're most passionate about. But I guess how do you scale that up so well that it works is another question, I guess. Well, I, I guess there's, you know, there's can you do it where you can, which I often think, you know, we talk about things being scalable, but not everything needs to be scalable. It needs to be scaled up completely, if that makes sense. 
you know, so an organization where occasionally you get to do that is surely better than an organization where you never get to do that. Um, and the other thing, just to kind of build on your point, um, I, I still see people who assume that they know what other people want from their careers because they assume it's similar to them or they assume it's similar to someone else in a similar position that they've seen before. So, yeah, I, I think we fail in terms of people's preference at a kind of micro level or a, a task level. But I think it's an even bigger crime when we fail at a career level because um, it's far too easy for people to make a lazy assumption that they know what motivates other people or what other people desire in the long term. Hmm. That's got to be... That's going to be my thought of tonight. I'm going to be thinking on that question, definitely, on that. Um, but I guess kind of going, going, taking that to kind of more of a, a um, more like a, a CIPD and qualifications and whatnot route, obviously with, with CIPD, you've got CIP level, blah, 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 and universities are doing degrees left, right and centre. Where where do you see the future of that going? I mean, is is it is it always going to be a need for kind of things like qualifications at unis and whatnot and CIPD? Where, how do, where do you see it going? I guess with maybe CIPD, but as a as a whole as well. I think um, so. I was chatting to someone recently about the future of work, and I said it's a really big thing because we never define a time frame. So you know, my guesses are probably all going to be right because I can just play them out until infinity. So if you're asking me about, will we always need qualifications? I think you could do a really good, you know, there, there could be a really good thought exercise where we said, what would a world look like without them? You know, and whether that's, you know, uh, more uh, recognition of experiences as people develop throughout their careers. Um, but certification of that, so maybe using blockchain, you know, I'll, I'll get in all the trendy words now, but, you know, <laughs> using blockchain for that kind of effective verification of they learned this and they did this here to this standard, um, which would allow for a more fluid approach to qualifications, but I think as it stands at the moment for the foreseeable future, people look for signifiers of experience, stature, knowledge and expertise. And that's why I think the quals market isn't going anywhere particularly quickly. You know, you look at um, five, six years ago, we'd have all been talking about MOOCs and we'd have been saying, you know, that's gonna completely undermine the university model you know, why would you even go to university anymore? And the answer is that, yes, people are still doing MOOCs, but actually the university sector still survives, still exists, and will do for some time. Um, so I think what we have seen, which is really interesting, is a shift towards apprenticeships um, and qualifications offered through that structure and a more vocational uh, kind of lens being applied to things. And I think that's the direction of travel, together with more evaluation of people's skills as they go throughout their career, because we're going to be working longer. People are already doing that. It's ridiculous to be defined by qualifications that quite often people pick up either before their career has started, which is you know fundamentally ridiculous, or actually you know towards the start of their career. We need to get far better at recognising that expertise, delivery, and learning as people you know pass through a career that will stretch decades. Yeah, I think I've I've gone back and forth on this, and I think I was in I was in a discussion on Twitter a while back, and I was having this conversation with Trish Eula. I don't know if you if you know Trish. Yeah. Um, I always get a surname wrong anyway, so apologies, Trish. Um, but basically, we, we were kind of talking about this, and I was kind of talk. I kind of 
I was having a chat with Nick as well. And I end up mapping it out on my whiteboard because I'm that person who has a whiteboard at home. Um, and it, it was interesting when I started looking at it from like a badge system rather than a qual system. Same thing, right? It's a, it's a badge or a qual, whatever. Um, but when I started looking at this kind of blockchain and how there's a lot of infrastructure, what I think would need to change first in, in order for that to even get to where it needs to get to. I mean, you need like um, you need like a journal, not a journal, what's a word? There's, it's basically like a lock, the best way I can describe it is like a lock and key. So you need every single business to kind of be up to a certain level in order for that blockchain to follow you around, right? So I just, I mean, maybe I'm yeah, just... You can, I think you can absolutely envisage that. Again, you know, there'd be a disagreement over timescales. Um, I guess my point would be that we'll probably still look for an aggregate of those skills to come together into one thing because you want to know if someone is good at X. We're probably probably the closest that we get currently is the endorsement system, uh, system on LinkedIn. Yeah. You know where it goes, 99 people so that you're good at fractions or whatever it is. And we know that we know that that's not, hugely functional i don't find it hugely useful i don't put a lot of um truck in that compared to other things but actually as a model of how it might look so if if you were to you know if you're an applicant currently and you went into um, a job that you might want to apply for on linkedin tells you how you compare to the other candidates tells you what percentage chance you have and tells you what percentage of you know and lists the skills they're looking for and tells you whether you have them you could see a far more advanced version of that being enabled that actually genuinely based it on people's real skills and aptitudes or evidence rather than just, you know, the popularity contest that we currently see. So I think kind of using that, that LinkedIn analogy, I mean, obviously the recommendations, which is someone right, actually physically writing that up, but actually the kind of one where we give you an knowledge for, I don't know, training. Um, that becomes, I think that's a, a it becomes that you can game the system with that, I think. So I think when we go down this more, let's just say we go down this badges route, I think it opens up a, a bigger argument to kind of look at how we can game that system. You know, with with universities, I guess it's not, it's not, you know, that's, that can still get gamed in a way. I think recently, in fact, it may have been last year when you was on the news and you were talking about qualifications and forgery in universities, if I remember rightly, it was a while back. Well, I was on the news for anyone listening to this podcast. I'm very, very famous. He is. Yeah. He is indeed. He is indeed. Um, but I think I think there's always going to be this thing of, of, of gaming that system. Um, and I think when you look at, say, something like universities and stuff like that, it puts a bit more of a barrier in place for that to happen, I guess. That's my, my gut feeling, just speaking out loud without really thinking about it too much. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I... I I did a, a, a MOOC a few years ago and the assessment was via peer review. So you were given a rubric and then you had to mark other students' papers. You know, 10 students did that. I imagine that's quite a difficult system to gain um, because my paper was being distributed to a group of other people. I think, um, you know, everything's gained currently. So people's CVs are full of overclaims, whether that's, you know, it's not often, um, uh, I did a qualification, I didn't have it, but more often, you know, I've certainly come across two people's CVs where they're both claiming responsibility for delivering the same project uplift at the same company at the same time. And gone, that's interesting because one of these are missing the truth. But, um, it's, you know, or you were working in a very siloed fashion. That's the only other option there, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. That's a good same job and didn't notice. So, 
I think there's always gaming in the system. I think as soon as you turn something into a target, so you go, if you achieve this, there's a there's a positive consequence. People start naturally adapting their behavior to, to get there. So, you know, it, and that goes from everything to people attempting to plant keywords in their CVs and the belief that that will get them to show up in searches more often, which is why you end up with everyone being, you know, uh, hardworking, resilient, energetic, you know, all the buzzwords. Um, and you, you lose, to your point, you lose all the individuality. And I, I think that that's my concern, is that we talk about, or people talk about, you know, wanting to bring humanity back into the workplace, but we're attempting to do most of this via algorithm. Um, and that doesn't mean there's anything inherently wrong with the technology, but it means we means that we do need to understand the tension between those two ambitions and find different ways to reconcile it. Cool, cool. So, so um, this is going kind of more taking it away from that now, I guess. But if I was to ask you to explain to a five-year-old or maybe a nine-year-old yeah. what it is you do for a living, how do you explain it? Uh, so we had that conversation a couple of years back, uh, and apparently I explained it really badly. So I said to Olwyn, um, I, I said to you when we were walking home, I said, do you know what Daddy does? And you said, no. And I said, well, I normally speak to organisations about how they could work better, help their people be better and be more successful. And that's my job. And she said, I think I understand exactly what you do. You help them negotiate better rates for electricity. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, so, you know, I, I look after... Um, the membership function and the membership proposition for, you know, one of the world's largest professional bodies um, in HR. Um, and I'm really proud of that. And my day is a varied one, but I guess I get up in the morning, most mornings, um, and think genuinely, how, how can we find a better way to be better for our members? Um, and what will we need to change? What will we need to shift? What will we need to find different ways or new ways to do? To make that happen um but i do that in pursuit not just of how can we get more members but how can we better serve our members but how can we put them in a position where they have a, a better impact on the world of work so i genuinely believe uh, in a very deep way um in a very sincere way that hr and lnd have incredibly important roles within organizations we're responsible for you know people's ongoing education opportunities, their ability to grow and develop and have great careers. We're responsible at times in HR for their safety um, in a working environment, for them getting paid successfully, for them being led well at times in terms of the influence we can bring to bear. And that means you need, because it's so important, you need great professionals doing that. So I think organisations are owed a fantastic profession because I think that's the way that you get better quality work for people. Okay. Okay. So, so I guess, you know, you kind of talk about you generally like going to work and you enjoy, you enjoy the role and kind of making, making it a better place for people and, 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 and whatnot. Let me ask you this question now, David. So we know you like other people. I think, I think that's, that's really clear, but do you even like yourself? Not really. Uh, I don't think. I mean, it's it's not a question I've given much thought to. Um, I try to not be awful. 
I, I try to not suck at whether that's being a you know a dad or, or part of family or or you know working with the people I do. I try to not be bad, but I, you meet so many people over the course of your life that you just go, you're incredible. You know whether they're inspiring, whether they're kind, whether they are generous, whether they're more thoughtful than you, um, or you see people that have you know the odds are actually stacked against them and they've managed to overcome them. And you know that actually you wouldn't have been able to do that yourself. So I, I probably don't dislike myself, but middle-ish, okay. middle-ish. Okay. Middle-ish is a good place to be for sure. So I think, you know, you're, you're quite active on Twitter. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm really intrigued to see where you go with this answer. So it's a two part question. So part one is, do you think social media is a net positive or a net negative to society? And part two is, what do you think to L&D's presence on social media? Uh, So honest answers to both. I think a net positive, but with incredibly dangerous downsides. Um, incredibly dangerous downsides. I, I don't think we yet understand what it's done to some of our social dynamics, what it's doing in terms of um, the impact culturally or into of people's expectations of interactions. Um, I think it connects people. It allows lots of positive things to happen. Uh, people describe it as kind of a reflection of us. I'm not entirely sure it is that. I think it's possibly the human race on steroids, and I'm not entirely sure that's a good thing longer term. So um, is the world a better place? You can make arguments for and against. I would say the technology is potentially positively transformative, but my confidence that it's being used in the right way, or even that the motivations that sit behind it and the architecture that sit behind it are effective enough to make it be used in the right way, I don't know. There was a really interesting piece um, uh, on the BBC earlier about Instagram building in a a warning if you're gonna post abuse online to say, do you really want to do this? which is interesting uh, in terms of, I guess, the use of technology to be able to do that. But you just go, look, the, the fact that that is a problem and that that problem is amplified in a way that it wasn't before, you know, thousands of people can abuse people online. That's not a problem that we've ever had really in the history of our species. Someone, you know, being hounded by people they have never met in countries they've never been to and have had no other interaction. That, that's got to be a worry. So if, if someone said tomorrow they're banning all social media, I, w- I would worry about the impact on free speech. I worry on people's ability to come together and communicate and mobilise actually for social change. But equally, you'd probably see a lot of things uh, resolved and changed in a, in a different way. And I think your second question was about how L&D show up. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting. So I, I've been on Twitter for seven, eight years now. It's, it's been a while. Uh, and I've seen people come and go, drifting in and out of favour. I've seen cliques form. I've seen cliques dissolve. I've seen, 
you know, people attempt to start movements, companies, groups of people, then fade away. And I've seen some stuff that's really positive and endures. Um, and actually, when you asked me earlier, you know, L&D Association, I immediately went to LDN site because, you know, that's been running for years and is awesome. Uh, so that for anyone who doesn't know, that's a kind of online weekly chat um, run by volunteers that brings the L&D profession together to discuss a topic once a week. Um, I think L&D professionals show up um, noisily. Um, I think there's quite often a snobbery. So if you're not, uh, what I have heard before is, you know, if you're not on here, then you don't understand what's going on in the real world. And I always think that's a very selective understanding of the real world. I think we need to understand technology. We need to understand communities. So it's a natural place to end up. Um, but I would never write off someone's career or context as, as uh, aggressively or straightforwardly as I have seen elsewhere. I see people sharing, which I think is absolutely brilliant. But to go back to some of the conversations we had earlier, I also see a fair bit of navel gazing. And I see some stuff that I just think if, if you were actually getting work done in an organization, you'd probably find a bit cringe, really. Because um, it's just, it, it's up in the air or it's focused in a really strange place. What I also see occasionally, um, Donald Clark would be a really good example, is some proper academic rigor and thinking around um, learning. Nick Shackleton-Jones, uh, who I answered a question for very badly earlier, would be another in that space. Um, but actually there's a host of people there um, that you could think of that really add value. And I see people like Fiona McBride, um, Michelle Parry Slater driving communities. Julie Driver is a really rich thinker and I love her writing. There's a, there's a whole stack of stuff where people show up really well. Um, but just occasionally, I think the community is um, as a whole or individuals, but I, I would never want to pick anyone out, would be a combination of either slightly too judgmental of people who aren't there and might have other things to do um, or slightly too introverted and less focused on the actual business issue and more on, you know, the 97th time that we revisited the question, you know, should L&D sit at the top table? Um, yeah, and I just, you know, past a certain point, you go, yeah, but it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Or it doesn't matter as much as you think, or it's not going to change since the last time you explored it. Um, and surely, 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 there must be more to do. So, um, yeah, they're my thoughts. Okay, so moving on to my next question really subtly. So talking about Twitter and LinkedIn, who's the five people you think everybody should follow? And in fact, this can be HR, L&D, or just anyone in general, David. Five people oh, that people should follow on, on LinkedIn, Andy. So uh, David James at Loop is doing really good stuff and is a really good thinker in this space. So I'll go for David um, for LND. I would say um, Neil Morrison is a, a genuine provocateur in the HR space. Um, and I mean that in all the best and worst ways. And they know exactly what I mean by that. Um, beyond that, here what I say are essentials. Um, Oh, what? You want to say something? I like that. I like the 
politician and question time. Uh, my daughter would like to recommend Joe Swenson. Uh, <laughs> it's a very precocious yeah. nine-year-old. I let her stay up and watch uh, Question Time each week or we watch it recorded. And you like Joe Swenson. Okay, we'll go for that. That's an interesting one. Yeah. <laughs> this isn't me getting political. That was someone else in the room. I think. <laughs> Didn't expect that. Um, then I would say uh, Rob McCargo, um, who works for PwC, does fantastic stuff in the AI and technology space. Um, and then, who am I going to go? I've got a male-dominated list so far, uh, which doesn't reflect my timeline. Uh, but it does reflect possibly how noisy some of the men are on Twitter. So uh, I mentioned Julie Driver earlier, so I'll go for that. In terms of her richness of thinking and her, her work on dialogue is really fascinating. I think whether you work in HR or L&D, understanding actually the spaces where people can connect, discuss and explore effectively is a really important thing. And then I will go for... Actually, do you know what? I'm, I'm going to go for John Amici. Uh, who, almost to wrap things up, um, who is the gentleman I said at the start likes to solve intractable problems. Uh, so John is a business psychologist. He's got a background in sports, uh, very successful. Um, but he's a really interesting thinker um, around psychology in general, leadership, um, and also diversity and inclusion. So I'm going to go with John. Is that five? Have I used up my five? Yeah, I think I think that's five, maybe even six. But I weren't stopping you. Definitely not. Awesome. Okay, so I guess kind of coming to the end now then, David. Um, right at the start of the show, I kind of said to you, you know, when you was, when you was in school, what is it your, your teacher used to say to you? What do you want to be when you grow up? And David, of all people you know, we never really stop growing. We never really stop learning. So if I was to ask that question now, David, what do you want to be when you grow up? What would you say now? Uh, I'm going to go with a good father for my daughter from age 10 onwards. Are you okay with that? Pardon? Would you want me to be a good daddy when I grow up? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. So at some point in the future, I'll be a good daddy. You are a good daddy. Okay. I'm glad that you said that because otherwise I'd have had to, you know, send you to your room. So that's what I'm going Yeah, I, I think that's probably the most important thing is is just getting that family bit right. Um, but otherwise... I don't know. My career is in a really weird place because I never expected to. I never expected to be in a role like this for an organisation like this, um, having conversations like this, or doing what I do on a daily basis. So working out where from, you know, where do you go from there is a, a really different, difficult thing. But one thing I never want to do is stop learning. So wherever I end up, I just want to keep learning, keep reading, keep absorbing and keep getting better um far from the finished article okay cool so so where can our where can our um listeners find you where's the best place to kind of reach out to you um as the blue anchor in reigate it's pretty good um, <laughs> the weekend. um i'll just bring the beer garden at the back it's lovely you can see out of the cricket pitch. um no uh so i'm uh at DDS180 uh, on Twitter. Uh, find me really easily on LinkedIn. Um, and I've got my own WordPress uh, blog or, or site, which is daviddesouza.com, where you can read more about JAWS uh, and it's linked to HR and leadership. Um, and then obviously, more important than me, is the organization. So look up the COPD. Um, 
give it a Google, actually, give it a Google and then hit the news button. And suddenly, I think for lots of people, you'll go, oh, you've got a view on that or you've got research on that. That's really interesting. Um, and I wish more people did. I remember um, I remember we've got a council uh, meeting, which is where uh, the heads of the branches all come together to feed into what we do as an organisation and give us opinions. And I remember the um, chief exec being late for one meeting because he was literally on uh, BBC Breakfast News. And I remember one of our council members going, you know, I just wish you were in the news more. And I'm like, we're in the news loads. And they were like, like when? And I'm like, he's literally on the news now. Um, and we'd had about three funk covers that, that week. So give us a Google, look at news, but also go on the research part of the website and you'll find some really interesting stuff there. Um, latest reports um, would have been on uh, why cultures go bad. So, you know, uh, what happens when people's ethics go wrong? So uh, on kind of bad apples and organisations. And then the second one is, you know, beyond the hype, what's actually happening when organisations automate? Are they getting better productivity? Are they doing job design well enough? It's really interesting stuff and we do it and it's available. So go make use of it. Awesome. Well, David, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Absolutely delighted to speak to you. Are you going to say goodbye? Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> Catch you later, David. Cheers, mate. Thank you. <laughs>